0: good afternoon good evening and good night wherever you are in the world as you tune in you are very welcome to Ireland Creates the podcast all about Irish storytellers across all genres from writers to comedians painters photographers Whatever you're at yourself, we're all about celebrating Irish storytellers here on Ireland Creates. My name is Ashling O'Rourke. I'm your host and I am a communications coach. So I help my clients clarify their message for their audience. And I thoroughly enjoy bringing you this podcast each and every episode. I hope you are safe and well as you tune in this week. We are joined today by a very interesting man. He is from my own home county of County Offaly here in the Republic of Ireland and he has I think, at least, an extremely interesting story to tell. He's a talented painter who has been recognized quite widely for his work. And I hope you enjoy hearing his story.
1: My name is Vincent Devine and I am an Irish visual artist.
0: Well, Vincent Devine, you are most welcome to Ireland Creates, the podcast all about Irish storytellers across all genres. So, Vincent, in recent months, you came to uh, national prominence, let's put it that way. You got a bit of a media attention um, because of the work that you did and the portrait that you made uh, with and of uh, Vicky Phelan. And we will get to that. But but let's go back to the very beginning. So who was the young Vincent Devine? Was he always into the art?
1: The young Vincent Devine is a complex young lad. So um, <laughs> I, I was always... Very artistic, so I was always drawing and any piece of paper I'd get my hands on i was was uh, doodling on um not to my mothers or fathers uh, uh, I suppose they weren't always happy with it. Uh, depending on what paper I got. but I suppose Ashleen, at seven years of age, I made a conscious decision that I was going to be an artist when I was when I grew up. So people you know would ask children what do you want to be when you grow up? what do you want to be? I knew when I was seven and eight. What I wanted to be and there was no change in that and the only reason I would ever have changed it is if I hadn't got into art college and my uh, guidance counselor Joan Grogan was a great woman for saying you have to have a backup plan and I said to her backup plans for just for people that don't that, that fail I said I don't intend on not being an artist <laughs> so she looked at me like I had 10 heads and She was like, Vincent, she said, you have to have a backup plan. I said, Joan, I said, it's just not working. I said, so I was going to my backup plan, which I was browbeating into, uh, um, I suppose, contemplating was um, doing some sort of English uh, degree or masters in Trinity, which I never would have got the points for in anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, because I wouldn't have been academically inclined like that. But that was my backup plan. So long term after I, I uh, I don't know, if I build a mansion, um, I want to retire uh, and write a book. So that's the long term plan, but at, at the moment, Being the Pope at 35, um, I plan on driving on with the art uh, for a good long while anyway.
0: And I should say as well, when I started off the conversation by asking who was the young Vincent Devine, that implies that I think you're much older than you are. So uh, apologies if I insulted the ego there a little bit, (laughs) Vincent, uh, because the two of us are um, in and around the same age. So, Vincent, like you said there, seven, you knew, like... That's kind of impressive. Like, let's call a spade a spade. Most kids haven't a notion what they want to do. They just want to enjoy life. Um, They might have some ideas, but the idea that you had this concrete plan in your head, did you have any idea of what it actually meant to be an artist at that stage?
1: Oh, no, no, no. Um, It was just an idea I got into my head and... As I got older and older, I realized challenges that went with it. And I mean, an interesting fact as well is when I went to um, my national or my secondary school, when I, in my national school, I would sit in at break time when uh, the weather wasn't great and I would draw uh, people from the history books and my teachers would give me books and I would find portraits and I'd copy them and they'd stick them up on the board. And then when I went to secondary school, um, they went, uh, they actually didn't have art as a subject. So I was under the impression that when I was to go into secondary school in Clara, they would get it in as a subject and ultimately never did. And there was plenty of fallings out over that as I got older because it didn't actually deter me from being an artist. Mm. I just needed to find out a way I was going to do it. So I had to go and get private tuition outside of school. And um, what essentially happened was I was, the only to, per, I was the only person sitting in the gymnasium in Clara in art school, Kieran, sitting the Leaving Cert exam when I sat it. Only person in there. And how I got by that exam, I have no idea. I, did, I skipped my whole first question. I probably shouldn't be saying this now in case there's younger people listening to it. <laughs> uh, but I'm a very bad example. But I skipped my whole first question and I looked at Picasso the night before and he came up and Picasso actually I've studied intensively now actually since, fully enough. And um, a, a question came up on like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings for my third question. And I was I, I was, I just looked up and I was like, I'm not a God-fearing man now, or I'm not a God-loving man at the best times, but there was definitely something looking out for me there, I can tell you. Uh, so I ultimately went on then and did a portfolio preparation course because I had to get all my work together. And that's where I learned all my technical skills and went on to do a year in Limerick and three years in Athlone, um, which is now TUS. Uh, AIT is now TUS. And yeah, everything just went from there. Um, so I just started painting just to make a, I started painting recreationally outside of college and started selling them for my mother's house for 50 quid here and 50 quid there until I was minted. Uh, that was my weekend drinking sorted, you know, back in the day. And uh, it just kept going and just kept going. And now it just seems to keep going and it's getting more and more to the point where it's a bit intimidating sometimes because, yeah, it's getting big now. And the reason I think I feel the pressure is because I'm representing someone like Vicky Phelan
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, on the national stage now with the painting. And um, I just have to make sure I do her proud and I do a good job for all the people around the country, not just women, men as well and children. Uh, that we can, you know, hopefully reach out and show people the power of art and the power of storytelling as well to uh, affect change, you know.
0: To get yourself through the Leaving Cert curriculum with no, like, oh, okay, outside tuition. And I, it's, it's one of my greatest regrets that because of the way my subjects fell, I wasn't able to take art in secondary school. Mm. Um, and I suppose it didn't dawn on me, I'll be honest, that I could have done art as a subject outside the school it didn't dawn on my parents either like no no shade on them um, uh, yeah but kind of to be able to do that to have the wherewithal at that age you strike me maybe as somebody who even at that age was was quite stubborn quite determined that this is the path that i know i want and i'll, I'll do whatever it takes
1: Uh, Yeah, but I was still a bit of an oddball, though, actually, as well. I mean, it's not as if I was a popular kid in school, you know, but I was very much. I I always had a very good idea of who I was, I suppose, on a deeper level and then morally as well. I was fairly happy with who I was, even though I made a lot of mistakes like all, all we all do when we're younger. I kind of was like, okay, well, my reasons for doing art are authentic. I'm doing this because it's good for me. It's good for me mentally. Um, people seem to think I'm good at it. And um, I'll just keep going at it. But I suppose there was always an overarching idea um, that maybe there was something deeper to it that mm-hmm. I just needed to stick it out at it. And that's all kind of come good now with Vicky feeling, you know.
0: Now, I'm an, I'm a very proud Offaly woman. I'm from Tullamore. Um, the town, finally, in the next 12 months, we hope we will have an art centre. Um, yeah. But it's a town, like, it's, it's a county where... while it's a very there's a very very active creative scene within the county we don't have things like galleries or to go to look at other artists so how did you um, get around that how did you make yourself aware of what artists existed in the world because we're talking about a time where you know where we were getting used to the idea of there being a thing called Google but it wasn't quite the social media age
1: yeah yeah I mean, like I have the gallery here now in Church Road um, and like that as well, I mean, it has its ups and downs. I mean, I'm able to host private clients here and have private viewings and that's great. And I mean, things are moving here. But the other side of it, Ashley as well, is that people don't really know how to approach this gallery space. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, it's like it's a UFO after dropping into the middle of Tullamore and they're kind of going, what's the deal with your man in there? Am I allowed to go in? Is everything in there 50, 80 grand? Uh, is there anything in there for 100 quid? So Tullamore, I suppose, needs, I suppose it needs this gallery here of mine and it also needs the Art Centre. And I would hope to dialogue and work with the Art Centre going forward. I mean, there is plans being made there at the moment. But I do think, I suppose, when when I started showing my work, Ashley, I mean, I became very conscious that people may have just been telling me they liked my work because we were all from Tullamore
0: mm-hmm. and they liked
1: me as a person. And I said, OK, well... I don't want to become one of those people that goes in the x factor and makes an absolute show of themselves because mommy and daddy have been telling them their the best things to slice bread so i said uh right i said what i'll do is i need to start spreading my wings a little bit i need to go somewhere outside of tullamore where people don't know who i am so that led me to heading up to stevens green and putting my paintings on the railings of stevens green where they have a, a play, an open plein air exhibition and from the confidence i got from that because my idea there Ashley, was look if the work is good enough people in dublin will buy it mm-hmm. It doesn't no matter who i'm connected to who i'm friends with who my family knows it's very much about the work standing on its own two feet and it did and i would i met people in different businesses people that were walking across uh, the street by the shelburne they would come over the i would always have one big painting to make sure i could kind of Uh, I suppose whipped them around I mean one fellow one day was on a bike and he nearly fell over the fucking handlebars of the bike because he stopped that quick to look at the big (laughs) one and I I was like that's the reaction you want he was like wow and stuff like that so I, and, and even now to this day, I'll have one statement piece. But that was my thought. I said, look, I need to spread my wings, go out with Tullamore. And now I've brought it back to Tullamore in the form of a gallery that I want people to engage with. Um, but like I said, there's plans underway there at the moment. But that, that was how I got my my, my leg up was... Off the back of the sales from Stevens Green, I started to make money, and then I started to put it back into the business, which I always did, and I took a stand in um, the RDS, the National Arts Fair in the RDS. Um, Now, it was taken over the year I did it. It's called ArtSource now. And I took a stand. It was only the smallest stand left. It was all the money that I had, and I just said, you know what? I was like, I'm just gonna go for it. So I did it, and I, I made a little bit of profit And then I put it back in the next year and the next year to the point where I grew it to a stage where I had a sellout show in 2018 to an absolutely uh, massive client who I can't disclose at all because he's intensely private. But he came up to the show and bought a stand worth of stuff that was valued at 120 grand. But like, actually, if I hadn't put my neck out there, I wouldn't have been able to make the decisions I made or I wouldn't have been able to get the avenues I did because mm. it took an incredible amount of courage and it took an incredible amount of neck, I suppose, sometimes to, to do that and to kind of get out there. But like then as well, like my partner Lynn was very influential in that because she was helping me out with helping out with the kids and stuff. So I was freed up to do all my work in the studio and that's the way it went. But I mean, there was a lot of, I, I had to put in serious hours, my side, Whereas I kind of missed out on some of the kids growing up, and so there's a lot more to it than people actually see. Because I even I heard him on the radio today talking about why why are you give an artist this new uh, pilot scheme for the 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 money, and I think if people knew how hard it was, actually, they would throw money at us you know
0: it's that um, it, what's that it's it's a meme that does the rounds on social media all the time you're not paying the artist or the creative or even the plumber for the time that you see them doing the work you're paying them for the years upon years of training uh, and practice and uh, will craftsmanship that has to go into these things um, so yeah I, and I think you're right I think if people actually realised you um, it would definitely, um, what's that phrase, separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit on Yes,
1: it would. And I mean, there's, there's some days I'd sit here and if people were, if I was to open up the windows and throw the walls back, they'd see me sitting in here staring at a painting for an hour and a half sometimes. And what people don't understand is, is that if I go hammering tongs into a painting, I will absolutely destroy it, no doubt. And there's a lot to be said for how much downtime you take for sitting and just staring at a piece and knowing what's the next best move to make and I do that in my waking life as well I sit I try to sit and silence myself if I have a big decision to make now I do a lot of meditation and stuff in, in the gallery here as well but I sit and I say right what's my next best move what's the next best thing I can do going forward and paintings like that as well you have to know when to I mean uh, the way, best way I can describe it it's almost like I go I, into a trance and then I essentially have to know when to pull myself back and make sure I'm not making a mess of the whole thing. And it's that constant tension between back and forth and back and forth. But like you said, I mean, you do have to have the drive and ambition mm-hmm. in order to want to do it. And I just, I'm very lucky to have found someone like Vicky who believes enough in the work to say, yeah, Vincent, I fully believe in the power of this. And then for someone like the guy who bought the painting, David Brennan, to come along and buy the painting to tour it around the country is just, Ashley it's just a phenomenal honour as an artist, you know.
0: Talk to me about your process. Like, one of the things that has always struck me about your work and and I've seen it around, uh, in Tullamore in particular, like, over the years, it's, you work with very vibrant colours. Like, it's, it's kind of it, not that it's easy to spot a Vincent Devine painting, but there is a certain vibrancy that is associated with your work. Where does that come from?
1: I mean, if you looked at my stuff, maybe circa, I don't know, 2008, it was very unrefined. It was very unapologetic. It was very pow, hit you straight upside of the head with colours. And I've refined my palette more and more. But I just love that celebration of color. And I mean, it's something that if you don't handle it correctly, it can look very gaudy. Mm-hmm. And I always try to kind of experiment and kind of hold myself back and push myself forward. But even as I do the new paintings, like even, for example, the John Hume one that's actually on show at the moment, if people come down and look in the gallery window, uh, the John Hume one, like itself, it's the, it's the most vibrant colors I've done since the stuff from 2008. And it's funny. It's very hard to explain because the process is essentially led by the person. So, for example, I mean, when when I was doing my celebrity portraiture where I was doing um, portraits of like Shakira and like Lady Gaga and all these people and getting shared on their social media platforms, it's very strange. I, I would always repeat the same colors for the same people and not even realize I was doing it until I looked back at them and said, why am I always picking purple for that color of a person? Why am I always picking green for that person? Like Beyonce was always the same colors and things like that. And, uh, you know, when I had the opportunity to meet um, the singer Alanis Morissette, she had said to me that she thought I had a thing called synesthesia. Do you know what that is, Ashley?
0: I've heard of it, but I'm not sure that I understand it.
1: Yeah, it's where people will see things in colors. They'll see mm-hmm. words as colors. They'll see emotions as colors. Now, I haven't read up on it now since she said it to me. But she thought I had the same thing she has because she sees things in colors. And she was convinced I had it as well because of the colors I'd used on her face. And I said to her, no, I actually don't. I said, that's all intuitive. I said, I just pick that, pick that up as I go along. And she kind of found that quite interesting. So, I mean, in answer to the question, I've always been led by what my subconscious is trying to tell me what to do. And like the John Hume one, it's almost like somebody stuck a hand in me and painted that for me. Do you know what I mean? It was crazy. It's, it's, it's a very interesting process, but it's also very scary because you don't know if it's always going to show up actually. Mm-hmm. That's the other side of it. You come into the studio and you go, God, is it going to show up today? I mean, I've listened to Billy Connolly's um, autobiography um, as an audiobook and he's very same. He said, at, at some stages, he was like, I'm not going to plan this. I'm just going to hope it keeps showing up. And it does. And I'm just fingers crossed that it keeps showing up for me the way it does. And I mean, I suppose at 35, some people have said to me, I'm only kind of getting started now because uh, everyone expects me to be a little bit older when they meet me and they see the work. So I suppose I hope that's, you know, portends for good things to come.
0: Do you? And this is probably a very basic question. Do you sketch out the ideas first or do you pick up a canvas and go for it?
1: Oh, it depends. Um, sometimes, now, when I say plan out, all the planning goes into the research. It all goes on in my head, and it goes into the sketchbooks. And then I literally do... If you've seen, if you've seen some of the sketches of some of the stuff I did, Ashley, you'd be like, that fella, you know, was the athlete. They're just scribbles. It's just literally marking down the areas of where things are going to go. Because if I overplan something, it stops the um, spontaneity happening on the canvas. Mm. And because I use acrylic, and it's such a fast, drying medium... Um, there's a painter called Francis Bacon and his work sells for mega mega bucks now and he would work on the back of the canvas with the oil paint and that way when he met a mark he, and if he, if he wasn't sure about the mark he would have to make the mark work and that forces your hand and it forces your subconscious brain and your conscious brain as well not to make mistakes so it's almost like it's very strange like when I, when I do um, sketches of people's faces especially Vicky's one I'll do it with a pen or a biro and what happens is it, it forces me to, to know that I can't make very many mistakes and that I better make every mark count. And if I make a screw up, I have to start again. And the paintings, especially the one in Vicky, was not unlike that. Um, I mean, I, if I do somebody's face, I have to make sure the face and the eyes are emoting very much so. But there is a spontaneity there where I have to know how much I can plan and how much I can't plan and then allow it to happen on the canvas. So it's, it's, it's very nerve-wracking, actually.
0: It certainly sounds it. Um, I And the reason I asked the question is because a couple of episodes back on the podcast, I had, um, well, a mother and daughter duo f- uh, from a, fa- a fashion brand, Misha Tussa. Um, and Maretta uh, gorman um is the designer behind it. And she was telling me that she doesn't sketch out designs, that she just, she picks up the fabric and she might at three o'clock in the morning, the design will come to her head and she'll go down to a mannequin and, and start pinning the fabric together. And that's how she does it. And... It really got me back thinking about how different each of us is in the process, in the way that we approach um, creative projects, and how you might, for instance, you maybe see the painting of John Hume in, in your gallery window and think, God, he, he had to, have, that has to have been planned out to a tea Now, that has spent hours of sketching before he put a bit of paint on anywhere near the the canvas. But I just find it fascinating to hear the process and what goes into the the, the what goes on behind the scenes. You know, but but underneath the layers of paint. So we've mentioned it a couple of times now, uh, Vincent. Talk to me about Vicky Phelan. So you, as I mentioned, you you came to some media attention, let's say, over the last couple of months because of a collaboration you did with uh, Vicky Phelan, uh, the Heroes Aid charity and the, the resulting uh, p- massive p- painting that you did. How did that all come about?
1: So um, the CEO of uh, the Heroes Aid charity um, is called Mary Leahy and Mary Leahy is a client of mine. So she was advertising Heroes Aid as a new charity to help frontline workers. So I said to her, I reached out to her and said, look, Mary, if there's anything I can do, I said, let me know. So we had come up with another idea and it was a whole different, it was a part of my Rugby Crest's idea, which I, which I, I, I was going to donate. And then things happened and didn't work out and, you know, things got in the way and stuff like that. So um, I had done a painting of a female artist called Artemisia Gentileschi. And she was an um, Italian artist in the 1600s. And she's another formidable woman. And eventually, you know, people might see that hanging up in the gallery as well when they walk by. Um, and uh, I'd be hoping to do talks on them in the future as well and have people come in and engage and stuff like that. But as as I was talking to Mary and, and, and we spoke about Vicky being on the, the Hero's Aid uh, board as a patient advocate, it's almost like I could feel Artemisia's eyes boring into the back of my head and I was like, I just got this thought I said, "There were Mary was saying I want to find a way to secure Vicky's legacy and stuff like that and I had said, I said sure I, I'll paint her and she said what do you mean you'll paint her? I said I'm doing this new work, I said and I'd love to paint her if she'd be open to because I've been following her story she's an incredible woman she's very tenacious and I have tremendous amount of respect for her so she came to the gallery now I might add under duress she had no intention of sitting for that portrait not one bit and she came up to my my studio which was over expert electrical at the time and uh, she came in and sat on the couch and I started doing the the talk on the Artemisia piece and as I was doing it, I could see her eyes light up, you know, above the mask because mm. we were all masked up. You know? Of course, yeah. And uh, I could see her eyes lighting up and I kind of knew I had her then. But I hoped I had her, you know, I hoped I, I impressed her because I was I was just focused on Vicky. There's two other people there as well. So we went out into my other room, which was my, another part of the gallery. And we sat down and we just instantly got on it, like straight away. And she was like, "Oh, this, that, and the other." And I love that painting. And I have an idea for this now. And you know, if you if you if you'd be willing to do mine, and I'd love it. And here's what I'd like to put into it. Here's what's important to me, and all this stuff. And that resulted afterwards in hours and hours of conversations of every in depth part of Vicky Phelan's life. Um, and she gave me absolutely everything. And after I took it on, or she took me on, I should say. Um, because I'm quite the undertaking and you know what I mean it's not as if you know you just come in and sit for a portrait and <laughs> off you go you know what I mean it's it's, it's um people people come in here I, I had a client who um, commissioned something off the back of seeing Vicky's one and he came in to me and said I want a portrait done of somebody but you know you're only going to have me for 15-20 minutes max and he left about two and a half hours later and he said to me he said that was like a counselling session and, uh, but he gave me so much to work with and Vicky's was oh, it must have been well over, well over 24 hours combined, more, I'd say, Uh, 48 hours of conversations uh, for what was going to go in and what was happening. And because, and when when she took me on, uh, I kind of went, oh God, I was like, oh shit. I said, "Um, what am I after getting myself into here? And I just thought, okay, Vincent, it's not just anybody, it's Vicky. And she's arguably the most famous woman in the country for all the wrong and the right reasons at the same time. Uh, Wrong because of what happened to her under the cervical smear scandal and right because of of her advocacy. And I just thought for a second, you're literally going to be representing every woman in the country, every man in the country as well, who's with a woman that's going through this stuff, every cancer survivor, every cancer patient, uh, all the children that are affected by this. I said, what are you after taking on here? And then I was reinforced by my circle of people around me. A lot of people who are around me are much older, who give me my advice and who I lean on. People in their fifties, sixties, seventies. I very few people in my circle that are the same age as me. Which is, which I, I don't know whether that's strange or not. But um, I tend to draw from people that have a lot more life experience than me. Mm -hmm. I feel like you can learn so much from people that have lived their life and have a certain expertise.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And in my 30s, I just decided to shut my mouth and open my two ears. And that's what I've been doing. And I've learned a tremendous amount of skills in in the five years since I stopped talking in my late 20s and just shut up. Um, So eventually, as the process went on, um I start kind of it started to evolve and I started to think of the symbols of the horses and you know, if people go on my website, you know, vincentdevine.com, they can go and they can see aspects of the portrait as well. And I had to run everything by Vicky and it was a collaboration. It wasn't just my idea. Um people say to me, God, you must be very proud of it. I said, well I'm only I, I only can do what I'm given. I can I can only work with what I'm given. And Vicky gave me the story and lended the story to me. And that's why I think it's, it turned out to be so successful was because the telling of the story of Vicky's life is so profound and powerful that it just translated well into my style of work. And I mean, another funny fact as well was is that I had to paint her face in five times. Um, I was doing it around Christmas and I had, I had a teenager moment where I got up from the easel and I stamped my two feet on the ground like a, like a fucking child, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, you're not going to get it. I was like, this is it now. You're after taking this on now. Everything else is perfect except for her face. But the problem was, Ashley, was when we took the photographs, I photographed her in the surf in Dune Beg where she wants her ashes scattered. And I told her not to wear her makeup and to be as natural as she could. And she looked so relaxed and peaceful in those photographs that she didn't look like the public Vicky.
0: Ah, I see. Okay. So...
1: I had to do a Photoshop job on it and I had to Photoshop the public Vicky, which I would know they're all my reference images. So I didn't take reference images from anybody. Mm. I brought her into the studio. I did three photo shoots where one on the beach in Doombeg and two then um, as a face reference. Um, mm. And that's why I think the face translates so well and people are really seeing it because There's two reasons for that. First of all, I sat across from her, had so many conversations with her and so many hours of conversation that I really had to look into her eyes and get the feel for who she was as a person. And then of course, it took me five attempts to get the feckin' face. So uh, there was really a a trial there and uh, thankfully I won because I got Vicky's seal of approval. Uh, But like I said, it was a collaboration with the two of us and um, I was just delighted that she liked it because there was every chance actually she could have clapped eyes in that painting and, and said, what? in the name of Jesus is that thing there, you know? And uh, I was just delighted that she was happy with.
0: I don't know Vicky Phelan personally, but she strikes me as a person that if she didn't like it, it wouldn't have made, it would never have seen the light of day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yes, the fact that it has, that she's permitted it to go out into the world and has spoken so highly of it herself, I think is definitely, um, well, it it shines a light on just how much she actually thinks of it herself. Um, Talk to me about the horses. Why are the horses included?
1: I mean, the horses are just the most, one of the most ancient things that we have. I mean, you have to remember about horses as well. I mean, they're almost um, defunct now. Uh, if you If you look at context of what they meant for human and civilization evolution, I mean horses meant you won a war, you lost a war. I mean that was horsepower, and I mean you look at them for the transport and things like that so they 're very important, I suppose, in art history as well and the history of of the human race essentially. but I picked the horses because Vicky had this event where where she was out walking in Limerick, she had her two kids, she was massively depressed. And she was wearing a baseball cap and the black horse um, in the first panel of the painting uh, represents this black horse that she was out walking one day and a barrel down on her and there was a guy walking two dogs and the two dogs started to jump at her she didn't see the horse behind her and the guy told her to take her headphones out and he pointed behind her and she looked at this massive black horse that was charging her down and he let the two dogs off the leash and they chased the horse off and she was a bit spooked, so she took the headphones out and then the horse found her again on a roundabout and started to stamp at the ground and it was as if it was going to charge her. And then a guy pulled up in a Mini Cooper on the roundabout and swung the door open and told her to hop in. And the horse chased him for miles up the road. And Vicky went back and told her sister Lindsay what happened. And Lindsay laughed at her and said, Vicky, that didn't happen. And she was like, Lindsay, you're calling me a liar. She said, I'm telling you it happened. And she said, it was such a bizarre, spooky event That it was, I suppose, to uh, symbolise this cancer. You know, this Mm -hmm. cancer that would follow her into the end of her life, which which it is doing now at the moment. Um, And that's what the black horse represents as the cancer. But then it's flanked the far side in the third panel by the white horse, and the white horse is this direct, I suppose, um, opposite to the black one, not just colour-wise. Uh, but symbolically as well, because it represents a few things. It represents, I suppose, first of all, it represents death, because there's an old analogy that death rides on a pale horse. It's kind of one of these old biblical sayings, uh, because her death is is essentially impending. Um, and that's what the candle in the, in the last panel represents as well, is the brevity of life, that, you know, our, everyone's candle could be snuffed out whenever. It's not just specific to Vicky because she's not well. I mean, it happens to everybody. So human life is fragile. And then the other... Uh, symbolism in the horse is the white horse of Tirnanog because the the white horse of Tirnanog was to represent that, you know, she would come back from America. Like Ushin came back from the land of Tirnanog. Uh, but even Oisin's return was a sad return because of what happened to him with the story of, of Um And that's why I chose that. And I also have a massive interest in preserving the heritage of this country because I do think, um, and you can listen up if you're in your 20s, Um that you're not doing enough and I don't think you're doing enough for our culture. And it's up to me, I suppose, and us at our age, Ashleen, to kind of take that torch off the people who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s, even 90s and pass it down to the generation, not in a way of telling them this is the way things should be done, but just to say you're here off the back of your ancestors who had to fight very, very hard for the level of comfort that even I experienced as a young man. And it's just to say, don't forget, your roots and where you came from. And that's why it was important for me to put that level of heritage into basically our Irish national hero, which is Vicky, you know?
0: Well, if you've not seen Vincent's painting of Vicky Thielen, I do hope that you look it up, as, as Vincent says, on his website, vincentdivine.com. If I should say you've never heard of Vicky Phelan and you've no idea of uh, what we're talking about, it's um, it's a harrowing story and a, a part of Irish history that I think will be looked back on with shame. Um, mm-hmm. But she's an incredible woman. So if, if you're listening to this from, from outside of Ireland, uh, please do look her up. She's absolutely, she is, she's a hero. There's no two ways about it. The studio... You, that you've set up for yourself now, um, and and gallery space, Vincent. How important is it for you that you have that space to go to, and and to even to leave at the end of the day that you you can close the door on that and go home and and have a separation between your 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 work life and, and your personal life. Like I know there are many artists that are still creating on the kitchen table.
1: Yeah, and you know what? I feel incredibly, incredibly blessed to be able to do that. Um, I mean, this journey hasn't been easy. um, There's been ups and downs, but I've kept at it, and I've had a tremendous amount of support around me as well from different people. And it's it's actually funny, Aisling. Um, Everything in my life so far, people that have come and gone, especially sometimes people that have come and gone for reasons that seem like they're negative at the time, have pushed me to the next stage of where I needed to go. And I don't know maybe who needs to hear this, but when you're going through some of the most traumatic things in life and you come out the far side of it, you do come out better off if you choose to come out better off from it. And that might not be easy for people who are facing illness and things like that, and maybe breakups of families and things, but we have a tremendous capacity as human beings to, especially I think Irish people, to make beauty from the bad things in life. And I do think that's the catharsis when it comes to painting as well. I mean, even if people are painting at the kitchen table, um, I, I suggest they keep doing it. And it really falls into categories of why are you painting? And I mean, when I started painting, I wasn't doing it to monetize it. But as I got older and I was doing it in school, I had to figure out a way to monetize it, especially when I had my little girl, because I realized, okay, Vincent, you're not number one here anymore. You have a little life to support now, so you better get going get the skates on and start making some money and that's what really led me to the path I went on because Anna Lee who's turning 11 in a few weeks was the greatest gift I ever had because she put things into perspective for me and I said okay I need to support Anna Lee I need to make sure I support my family going forward and that's really what I worked for Uh, but now it's kind of changed from like uh, and I was there I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and uh, she bought a painting off me for 150 quid and I painted on the sitting room floor, propped up against the cushion and trying my best to put a skin on the fucking sitting room because uh, I didn't want to get painted anything. So I was trying to get these drop sheets and mix a skin on the whole sitting room so I wouldn't get flicks and anything around mm-hmm. the wall.
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking
1: about. Yeah. Oh my God. So, and then I gradually went from that into a house where I had the upstairs room and then the next one, then we found a place to rent uh, when you could find somewhere to rent mm-hmm. um, uh, where, where I had a dining room where the landlord was very, very nice and said you can have that as your painting room. Don't worry about getting splashes on the wall um, and to the point where I ended up making enough money that I could actually go and seriously consider getting my own studio space and ultimately gallery. Uh, but it's funny how... Um, people would say to me, Vincent, how do I make money at this? And I said, well, it depends what your intention is. If your intention is to make money, you will make money at it. Eventually you'll find a way, but you don't have to make money at art if you're getting something else from it. And I say to people, there is something that we get from art that you can't rationally explain. But I can tell you, if I don't paint for more than two months, I am like the antichrist. I have to paint. It's literally part of my DNA and who I am. It's part, it's very much ingrained in my, my whole psyche. So if people are getting it and they're doing it at the kitchen table, I say go for it and keep at it. And any, any advice I can give people, I'm more than willing to answer people's questions if they want to ask me questions with the intention of really advancing themselves in the arts. And I mean, the hope essentially Ashling. I mean, I've had a few private um, clients come to me and say they'd love to financially back me in opening up a school. And I have just said, guys, at the moment, I can't attach myself to that at the moment. But the hope would be is that, you know, I could help support people and show people using my journey as well, that there are avenues where you can, I suppose, support yourself financially with the arts. And also you can get something more out of it for your own mental health, because art therapy is a massive thing as well. So, I mean, I'm deeply, deeply passionate and committed to showing people the power of art and the importance of it in society all over the world, you know.
0: And you mentioned and and I'm just I'm bringing it up now because it seems very relevant to to what you've just said. You mentioned earlier on that that you meditate a lot in the studio and you obviously think very deeply about the work and about the importance of of the arts in general. Um, But I'm I'm curious about that connection for you, the, the connection between your arts practice and your psychological well-being.
1: Well, I have a meditation story to beat the band. Are you ready for it?
0: I am indeed.
1: Wait till you hear this. So I hadn't meditated a day in my life until um, March 2020. And we all know what happened in March 2020. Oh, we just <laughs> stopped. Mm-hmm. And I was coming. We went to Toronto to do a show and we were coming back and we were sneering, uh, myself and Lynn, going into the airport because we were charged... 10 euro for 10 masks just before everything broke out. So there's profiteering for you. And um, we went into the airport and I said, but will we wear a mask or not? And Lim was like, no, 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 we can't be drinking wine, pulling down the mask and drinking the wine and pulling it back up, right? Sneering. And then we came back from Toronto and it was no joke. And then I went to London and uh, that was in March and it was really no joke then. And I came back on the ferry uh, the day before lockdown, and I was able to uh, access my studio. Um, so I was supposed to be in the house, but I figured, look, i go to my studio in town. I'm not bothering anybody. I was supposed to be at home. I broke the protocol, big deal, went up, but I wasn't around anybody. I was totally on my own. So um, I went up to the studio, and it was overlooking uh, the street. And it was like, actually, in this kind of dystopian... Armageddonish, ish uh, strange. There was no people, there was no cars, there was no noise, there was yeah. no children. Uh, there was no dogs. And I was like, what in the name of Christ is happening here? And I had to start, I, had, I said, okay, I'm painting now. The painting is heavily monetized. So there's, there's not the catharsis I was getting from that or therapy I was getting from it. So I said, what am I going to do? I said, great, I start meditating. So I started to meditate. And I did the guided meditations by uh, Deepak Chopra and found them fantastic because I was only in silence with my eyes closed for five minutes. And it just, it was a nice gentle kind of lead in to meditation. So one morning I woke up after meditating for 60 days in a row and I couldn't spell anything over five letters long. Right. So I woke up and naturally thought I was after having a fucking stroke, Right. And I was like, what is wrong with me? I can't spell anything over five letters. I went down to Lynn and I said, "Uh, I can't spell anything over five letters. And she went, what do you mean? You're joking. Um, And I went, no, ask me to spell something. So that was fine. And uh, I rang my GP then straight away and said, I need to come over. I said, there's something wrong with me. I can't spell anything. So we went over anyway. And the reason I couldn't do that was because when I was in Toronto, we found a place, a bar, Over there, it did this thing called rose all day. You see where this is going now, and it was just around the Mm -hmm. corner the the ice rink. Oh, right, so I went. Uh, we went, and somebody had booked the table, an open table, and we decided we were going to go ice skating full of hooch, right? And uh, the long because that's
0: that's when the best ideas come to us. Yeah, go
1: on. Now, my cousin Sheena, who's Canadian, said to me, She said you are not allowed to go ice skating. We get taught how to ice skate and ice hockey, but you get taught GIA. She said, it's absolutely nuts. Don't do it. So I ended up falling naturally enough right on the back of my head. Right. So my, I hit completely the base of my skull, didn't crack anything, but gave it a nice owl wobble.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now what me and the GP came to was that I had a delayed concussion. And obviously I fell asleep on my delayed concussion and I was a little bit off. now, When I couldn't spell anything, it was months and months later down the line. It must have been about uh, May, June. And he said what happened was because I had kept up the meditation for a few months, he said it had changed the shape of my brain to a degree where it created a delayed reaction to my concussion. And that's why I wasn't able to spell.
0: Can you spell now?
1: I can spell now, yes. Okay. But if that's not an advocation for meditation work, and I have no idea what is, it actually changed the shape of my brain, Ashley. It actually changed my brain shape. And what it did for me was it allowed me to plan my day, If I needed to just lie there and just meditate, it would be fine. If I needed to, if I had pain in my body, sometimes it would go away. Um, If I needed to visualize something, I would visualize something. If I, I practice intermittent fasting, so some days if I came in and didn't have a drink of water, I would have these kind of massive, kind of trippy visualizations during meditation. I am a huge advocate for it because what it did was, it gave me the space I used to get from the painting and I couldn't get anymore. Okay. It's it's incredible.
0: Okay, so at that point because i suppose there is that that fear that that when the passion becomes the day job that y- y- you still need something else for you. Um so that's oh, that's fascinating. That's really very interesting. And like would do you do you encourage other people to meditate?
1: It depends on the person. Some people Do you know what i found as well, Ashling? Um i found i actually liked who I was more when I was in meditation than when I was awake out meditation. And I found that very strange because, um, uh, you know, I thought, like I said, when I was younger, I was fairly happy with who I was and I had good morals, but I made a lot of mistakes. And when I went to that quiet place in meditation and I spoke to myself or I had that quiet time, I found it wasn't as noisy as I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's why everyone's afraid of it, meditation. They're afraid that all these bad thoughts or all these racing thoughts are going to come rushing in. And they do actually, they do, but there is a way to take yourself out of it and observe these thoughts as just being thoughts that you're observing. And it makes it much easier to just t- sit with them. But you see, I'm an analysis by nature. I'm a researcher, so I don't mind analyzing my thoughts and looking where they come from, but that may not be easy for some people. But if people stick it out, they will find a piece that you can't find when you're conscious and your neurology is, and your serotonin levels are racing and stuff like that. There is great merit. That's why it's been around for thousands of years actually, because it works, you know, and it did work and it is working, you know. So, uh, absolutely, huge advocate for it. Uh, But to get people to do it now is a whole different thing altogether.
0: It's, um, I'm not as regular as yourself at it, but it has played a huge role in my life. And I live with chronic pain. And one of the phrases that I remember, t- I went on different courses and being told was like, to, to remind yourself that you're not in pain, that pain is present. And it, in my head, I, I immediately connected it to the way we speak Irish. Now, I'm not a Gaelgor. Gore. I, I, I did primary secondary school and all of that but i Irish it's terrible um, yeah. but um, like if you were describing like that you're that you're sad and Irish it's tall bro and the sadness is on me yeah. um, and I think that's one of the one of the beautiful skills that you learn through meditation if you follow that path but obviously each to their own and what works for you might not work for somebody else Um, I'm interested in in what you said there about you know encouraging young people to to look at Ireland, to look at our culture, to see what they can do to, to continue it on. How important do you think it is that there is that connection between maybe an older generation of artists to somebody in your position, to, to somebody younger, that, that people are there along the way to support each other?
1: I mean, I have a huge amount of respect for the youth of today because we're becoming a global generation. Mm-hmm. Everything is happening now with social media. We're becoming globalized. But there are things that we can celebrate with this globalization, where we can bring the diversity we bring as Irish people to different cultures. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is bridge the gap between the older and younger generations to say, right, lads. Just wake up now a little bit. Let's, let's just wake up a little bit more now. And I, we know life is stressful and we know that, you know, we're becoming more mentally and consciously aware of stuff. But just remember that the standard of living that we have is off the back of our ancestors and they really struggled. I mean, uh, when I did the research on the famine for my Jack B. Yeats piece, I mean, Jesus Christ, Ashley. I mean, they were finding people with, with grass in their mouths because they were trying to get nutrition from the fucking grass. And I mean, these are our ancestors. And and you know what? The reason that there's no ancestors theirs now is because they all died. And the reason we're here is because our ancestors survived through whatever means they needed to. And, you know, you, you kind of look back at it and you go, OK, well, survival is the one main function at the moment. What is that redefined as now? And what does survival mean now? Where it would have meant back then. And by getting the stories from the older generation, not to dictate or to say, this is what they had to go through. Like, remember when we were younger, it was always like, uh, you know, there's kids starving all over the world, you know, and you oh, won't yeah. eat your dinner, you know, and we were like shamed into not eating our dinner. But like, that's all gone now, and every, everything is advancing so much quicker. And I think it's about kind of holding awareness for history. That's why I do people who are, why I do, you know, paintings of historical figures to say, look, history can teach us tremendous lessons about what we did wrong. So let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. I mean, even now, after doing John Hume's uh, painting and researching everything up the North, I had to kind of look now at the bomb scare that happened a few weeks ago and say, there you go now. That's how easy it is to slip back if people forget what people like John Hume, Seamus Mallon, and Austin Curry fought for. And it's very much, and and I mean, I don't know about you, Ashley, but John Hume's work would have went over my head. Mm. And I mean, I was deeply ashamed at the fact that I didn't—that everyone knew about Heaney as the, the, the Nobel uh, Prize winner, but I didn't know about John Hume and the work that he did. So the John Hume painting was a reaction to my shame of not knowing the Trojan work that he did for the landscape of this whole country. And I do think it's not a bad way to go forward. I mean, maybe that's the one good thing about shame is that it does make you look at, you know, your own private shame, uh, historically and say, well, what can I do to advance this? So that's why I did people like Jack B Yates and people like John Hume. And I do encourage the youth of today. Like, it's very easy to access this podcast because it's accessible. You can listen to it when you're doing in the gym or when you're walking or whether you're doing something. So, I think the, the the way of communication now has opened so many more avenues for people to consume information. And the fact this is long form and not 15 minutes on the radio, where they're like, mon in Vincent, there you go, good luck, even though it's great and it's concise to a point and it makes you think on the hop. I think there is huge merit in the youth of today accessing information like this. And who knows, it might lead them down a rabbit hole that they might, you know, Changed the course of their life. Like John Humes has changed the course of mine. I mean, he's taught me how to find the common ground with most people and even people I fundamentally disagree with. And I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he sat across from Ma- Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And I mean, whenever anyone mentioned Margaret Thatcher when I was younger, there'd be steam coming out their ears. Or Irene Paisley and stuff like that. So, I mean, his work has profoundly affected my life, but I'm very lucky that I'm able to sit here and research him. So all I can do is talk to younger generations and different generations to say, look, here's the here's what it is as I see it. It doesn't mean that I'm right or I'm wrong. It just means that I'm giving you the actual information, the facts. I'm not expounding on the facts for any political gain or any social gain myself. I'm saying here's the landscape of what things look like. Here it is today. What can we do to make sure that people are supported moving forward? And how do we not make sure that we... That we how do we make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, like what happened with Vicky Phelan and like what happened with cervical smear scandal.
0: On that note, Vincent Devine, what does storytelling mean to you?
1: Well, it's now become, <laughs> it's now become my everyday. I mean, my, my, my mother always said I had a big mouth and it would come in good for something. And I did kiss the Barney Stone twice, which may not have been, I don't know, the jury's out on that one, actually. Um, but Storytelling, to me, um, is one of the oldest traditions we have um, from this beautiful green island of ours. And we brought it all over the world because of having to leave this country in such tragic circumstances. And we brought our stories with us. We brought them to Australia. We brought them to America. We work in embassies. We work in different blue collar jobs all over the world. And people like us and love us because of our ability to tell stories. And I suppose the privilege I now have, which is ultimately the saddest privilege, is to keep Vicky's legacy alive through the avenue of storytelling. And for me to be able to paint and make a career, which is only supported by people who buy my work, um, to be able to make a living at this and support myself and my family, but also to be able to do something socially active with it through the medium of storytelling combined with the painting, is an absolute dream come true. And I really hope and encourage people to come and engage with the works and especially with Vicky Feeling's one. And use it as a beacon of hope after you hear the story about her life. Not to be sad but to keep yourself going and realise nobody has to go through what Vicky had to go through. And I'm just gonna get myself checked and get my daughters checked and get my husband to get himself checked. And that's where the storytelling's coming in. I'm weaving people's stories into the narrative of these paintings. And I think that's one thing that we can be proud of as a nation, that we are ultimately and will continue to be a nation of storytellers.
0: Well, Vincent Devine, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Ireland Creates. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Oh, Ashley, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: My sincere thanks to Vincent Devine for being so generous with his time. I would encourage you to check out his website, vincentdevine.com. To get some insight into his story and his work and I do intend on popping into the gallery on Church Road in Tullamore over the coming weeks. Well I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. If you would like to get involved in the podcast, if you'd like to nominate somebody to be featured please do get in contact with me through my website ashlingauroracom. You can send me an, e- an email to info at aislingorourke.com. The podcast theme tune is by createskill.ie and the artwork is by ClareCreative.com. That's all we have time for on this week's episode of Ireland Creates. Have a great week and stay safe.